Well, good morning. So we had one day of winter this year. And unfortunately, uh, if you looked at the weather report, it's going to get into the 50s uh, this week. It's uh, kind of a crazy experience of a winter this year. And, uh, and we um, basically, we were trying to get an overhead picture of our parking lot this past week. And the balloon got away from us. And unfortunately, the Air Force... Uh, yeah, that was an unfortunate incident. But uh, anyway, good ideas gone wrong. Having said that, we're glad you're here. And uh, if you're new here, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LAFC. And uh, if you are new, this might be actually the perfect Sunday to have come as a visitor because you're going to hear the primary mission uh, and the strategy by how we. Uh, live out the mission that God has given us, and we're going to be talking about that today. And we began this series uh, at the beginning of January, and we get our direction as a church from this passage in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus, before he went back to be with his heavenly Father, he told his disciples who were going to begin the era of the church, he says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of me. And you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is that opportunity to just simply declare the work of what God's done in you. And then we're to teach all that he has taught us. And so that's the commission that was given to the church. So therefore, that's our mission. And to be a disciple is to be like the person you're following. And so we're to, he becomes the template, the model uh, and so Jesus is our template. He is our model for how to do life. And so as we studied the life of Jesus, uh, we discovered that you can kind of simplify his life into four basic directives. And that is that we're to love God with all of our being. And that's part of what is known as the great commandment. And so we're to love him with all of our being. And then if we love him with all of our being, then, then as we love him, his love permeates us and we become more like him and we then love people. And we, we love out of the love that Christ first loved us. So then we love others because of the love we've received. And then as we continue to do this life, we're directed uh, by the truth of God's word and the truth of his spirit and the truth of the life of Jesus. And so we're living that out daily, not by the false premises of the world, but rather we, we look to him and, and the word of God as the guidance for truth and to lead us into all truth. And then this is not meant to just keep for ourselves as if, our li if the greatest thing that ever happened to us is to come into relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Why would we withhold that from someone else? We're called to proclaim. And Jesus says, this is a gift being given to us. This gift of faith is given to us, and it's something we pay forward. We, we continue on. And so we talked about proclaiming Jesus last week. But then the question becomes, so Jesus says in his great commission, we're to go into all the world. So how does this play out? Uh, the idea of loving God, loving people, uh, living truth, and proclaiming Jesus. How is this played out, and where do we begin? And that's where we are at today, because we believe that we are called to make disciples of Jesus Christ in our relational worlds and beyond. So we begin where our feet are, and uh, that's where we're at today, is we're going to be looking at this. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Uh, we're going to be in that text uh, for a little bit, and then we're going to do some flyovers of some other examples uh, in that. So if you didn't bring a Bible, our ushers are, will provide you one now. Just simply hold your hand up. And as always, we provide the text in the, in the YouVersion Bible app uh, that you can find on your smartphones. Uh, so having said that, I just said that we believe that the best place to begin the journey of being a disciple maker is in your relational world. And uh, so that's the English way of describing it. In the biblical text, you'll find a, that, you know, again, if you're not aware, uh, when the, the New Testament in particular was written, it was written in the Greek. So our oldest texts that, and manuscripts we can go to are in the Greek. So all of our English translations uh, tend to come out of that with a handful coming out of the Latin text. Uh, but the Old Testament, written originally in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek, with some Aramaic mixed in, and then we get our English translations. But in the Greek world, at the time that the Hellenism had permeated the entire region of, of Asia Minor, uh, much of the Mediterranean area, and in particular the Middle East, and whenever they would use this idea of your area, your relational world, or your place of influence, they would simply use the term oikos. Now, oikos, you might recognize the term it is a, as a Greek term that is placed on yogurt. Um, and you'll hear on the commercials, if you ever see an oik, a yogurt commercial, they'll say oikos, which is a modern Greek pronunciation. In Kone Greek, ancient Greek, it would be oikos. Uh, but it literally means household. Uh, so it's a place, so when you would read in scripture, you would see it literally or translate it as household. But the problem is in, in our culture, to say in your household, we would think immediately our immediate family who each have a bed in that house. Um, and that's what we would tend to think. But when the Greeks would use that term, household, it would be all those that you would do life with, those that you would have influence with. It literally is your sphere of influence. It, it's all those who would come through your house because the home was the center of social life. Uh, in our culture, you might invite somebody to your home, uh, but it's kind of become a lost art. And honestly, it's a, it is a loss. Uh, to our culture, that we don't invite more people to our tables because that's where great discussion happens and that's where relationships can go from where they were to something even beyond. And, and so back then, that's where they interrelated was around the table and, and in their homes. And so to hear household, they'd be like, oh yeah, I have these people that are in my house regularly. So as we use this term oikos, we, we choose to use it here at LESC because it's a term that doesn't have baggage uh, to it. So if you're here long enough, whenever I use the term oikos, I'll always define it, but it immediately communicates something to this group of people, this church, that, well, that's where I do my mission. That's where I do the life of the gospel among this group of people. These are the people that God's given me as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus to. And some of the people in my oikos are believers. Uh, they know Jesus like I know Jesus. And some of the people in my oikos don't know him at all. Uh, and so I'm called to be able to show, sow the seeds of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, 
in those relationships. So wherever they're at with Jesus, my role as God has placed me there uniquely in their life, my role is to help them to go from wherever they're at in regards to Jesus and to continue that journey to know him more. So if they don't know him at all, I'm revealing, I'm being salt and light to them. If they know him, then I'm being salt and light to them and reminding them of the grace they've received in Jesus and we continue to pursue him. So why is this particular term or this idea of sphere of influence, relational world, why is that the best place to begin our mission as disciple makers? Well, I believe it's because, and, and I get this actually from the book 8 to 15. Tom Mercer wrote this book a few years ago, and he describes this idea of oikos discipleship. And, and he says, you know, it's the best place to begin because it is the most natural and common environment for evangelism to occur. All right? So evangelism is to share the gospel, to share about Jesus. Now, evangelism can happen to unbelievers and believers. So... Many of you here are believers, and my role even now is to continue to communicate the gospel to you so that it, you continue to have it resonating in your heart. Even if you have been a child of God, a follower of Jesus for years, it is still an important thing to be reminded of the gospel that is sown in your heart. And so it is the most natural and common environment for evangelism to occur because you already have influence with them. And so if you have relationship and you have influence, wouldn't you want to start there in being open about what your journey looks like with Jesus? Wouldn't you want to start there? It's also, um, this oikos is the sphere of greatest influence. So it is, the, it is a likely group of 8 to 15 approximate. Some of us have bigger oikoses than others. But it's where you share your life most closely. So you're already sharing deeply with these kind of people. And so why would you not also include with them what God is doing in your life, the, your love for God permeating those relationships? These are also the people for whom God has assigned you. Now that might be something that you've never thought of before. Have you ever really considered that the people that are in your relational world are actually assigned to you for their betterment of knowing who Jesus is all the more. That if God was to pull you out of their life, they would be missing out on hearing what Jesus may want to do in their life. That it would be a loss to them if God was to remove you. So literally, these 8 to 15, and again, that number is not a magical number, but that group of people that you have influence with, if you were a child of God, would you consider thinking differently that maybe these are people that God has assigned to you to sow seeds of the gospel in continually? Whether they're believer or unbeliever, that you are there to enrich and to move them forward to knowing Jesus more? The beautiful thing is that when some of the people in your oikos are believers, that it becomes a mutual benefit. That as you're sowing seeds of the gospel in them and, and spurring them on towards Jesus, it becomes a mutual effect that they spur you on towards love and good deeds as well as Hebrews chapter 10 uh, speaks of. That's why we're called to gather. We're not to separate from each other. We're actually called to gather together as the body of Christ. But your oikos or your relational world is also this. And I like this final point by Tom. He says, it's a, it's a microcosm of the world at large for whom God has sent his son 
that all who place their faith in Christ would be delivered from the bondage of sin and enjoy life to the fullest. See, if you look at it as a microcosm of the greater movement of God, then just by taking the people here in this room, some of our oikoses might actually overlap. Somebody in my oikos might also be in your oikos. And we get, to, we get to affect some of the same people. I've had the privilege of leading several people to Christ since I've been here, and I wasn't the only one sowing into them. And I've seen people come to Christ that was led to Christ by somebody else, and I had been a part of sowing into that person's life before that decision had happened. This is all a part of the fabric of how God does his work. And it crosses over the entire world. And one of the beautiful things about how God does things is that he moves people around because at some point he desires, you know what, I want to use you somewhere else. And so I grew up in the Midwest. I did not expect to live the majority of my life in Pennsylvania. And now I'm here. And I, and I would say that while I still find my roots and a lot of my sports identities from back west, I am truly here, and I just swallow the pill when the Eagles make the Super Bowl. <laughs> Go birds, right? So it's just part of how God moves. And now I get the privilege of having an oikos in Pennsylvania. Historically, I had people in my relational worlds that were in Kansas City and, and in the far parts of Kansas and, and then in the southern parts of Missouri. And it was beautiful to be able to sow in for a season, but then God moved me here. And I find it a privilege, and now I'm here. Like, this is where I do life. And because this is a microcosm of something greater, my eyes aren't just for the Lidditz and Mannheim and, and Ephrata and Township and Lancaster areas. No, my eyes are actually, this is a part of a greater movement that's across the entire world. And we as a church get to oppor the opportunity to continue to sow that into other places in the world. And for us as a church, we sow in Southeast Asia uh, primarily. We have places, other places we serve, but we're really putting a lot of effort into Southeast Asia. But I wouldn't begin to even care about somebody in Southeast Asia knowing about Jesus if I can't figure out how to care for somebody who doesn't know Jesus that I see on a weekly basis. Does that make sense? That if we cannot figure out how to actually care for those we encounter on a week-to-week -week basis, how in the world would we ever truly sincerely care for those we've never seen or have ever met? And that's why I believe that there is a, an aspect that, that, that why Jesus said to his disciples that I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. It, it, it begins where your feet are, and that's where he was talking to them. But they weren't intended to just keep the gospel in Jerusalem. And that's where we've talked about before, historically, that God used events like the destruction of Jerusalem to scatter the church intentionally so that the gospel can go to the far reaches of the world. And we as a church are committed to that, not only for doing the gospel here in our relational worlds here, but it's to go beyond. So as we look at this, if this is indeed what God's intent is, let's, is it found in Scripture? So I want to just do some, some text. We're going to get to Acts chapter 10 here in a moment. Um, so it says in John chapter 4 that there was a, an official whose son needed healed. 
And, and so this encounter uh, was such that he was like, he wanted this, this ma- young man, his, his son to be healed. And, and he came to Jesus wanting that healing to happen. And what ended up happening is Jesus healed the son. But what you need to, to look at in verse 53 of John 4 is that not only did this man now discover faith because of the healing of his son, but it says his entire household, his oikos, that included not just those who lived in that house, but those who were a part of his life. I mean, imagine the impact that if you had a sick child and Jesus showed up and healed that child, it wouldn't just be those who live in your house that would be impacted. It would be all those that were burdened with you. It was all those that you've been sharing. My son is sick. Those who had been bringing by meals while you were struggling with your son being sick. Those who were coming and praying over your son because your son was sick. Jesus shows up and it changes not just the household that that lived there, but the household that integrated with that house. Matthew chapter 9. What's interesting here is that Matthew himself tells his story there. That, that, and if you've got to understand, Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors pretty much got disowned by their families. So when you talk about their oikos, it didn't include their extended families or their family because they've been kicked out. And so when Matthew... Got, you know, begins following Jesus, and, and, and earlier in the day, Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew starts following him, and Matthew's like, wait, wait, you've got to come to my house, and then he has this meal, and who does he invite, since he really doesn't have a whole lot of family that would be willing to acknowledge him? He invites other tax collectors. In Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13, Matthew invites all these tax collectors together, and some Gentiles as well, Because Gentiles didn't care if they had become tax collectors. In fact, that's who they were working for, the Romans. So they're they're getting accused now. Jesus shows up and all these tax collectors start beginning to follow him as well as some of the Romans. And the Jewish spiritual leaders were like, wait a second. How is it possible that this gospel, the good news, the Messiah supposedly, is ministering and hanging out with people that don't have great reputations? But yet the gospel's coming to them. And it's coming to them because as each tax collector starts coming to Jesus, they start gathering. Zacchaeus, the same thing happened to him. uh, That he was in in Luke 19, that like Zacchaeus, what did he do? He invited a bunch of tax collectors. That was his fear of influence. And they come to Jesus. You see it over and over. One man that got saved uh, following after Jesus and Jesus had done something miraculous in his life that he was, uh, Jesus cast out some demons in his life and, and, and this man was so grateful to that healing that he says, I want to follow you. I want to go on tour with you. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no, go back to your town and share with them what I have done for you. And it says that that man went back to his Oikos, and he shared the gospel, and many believed. John chapter 4, again, but at the earlier parts of it, the woman at the well, when, when God had impacted her life, what did she do? She goes back to the town she lived in. That was her sphere of influence. Now, it wasn't a great influence, but the testimony of her caused an entire revival of her little community. But I want to highlight one story in particular, and that's found in Acts chapter 10. And a couple things were going on there that you need to know before we get to the part we're going to read. 
that first of all, there are two main figures in the story. You have Peter, the apostle, and then you have Cornelius, a Roman centurion. So a Roman centurion would be a high-ranking military official in the Roman army. And they were known for brutality. They were known for being um, uh, basically enemies of Israel. But Cornelius, this Roman centurion, was known as a God-fearing man. Now, within the context of Roman theology, if you will, they believed in many gods. But he would pray to a god that he did not know, the, the most powerful of gods, and he would pray to them and, and pray to him, and then he would also give gifts of compassion and kindness to the poor. So he was not the stereotype of a typical Roman centurion. So you have him as a figure. Then you have the Apostle Peter, who is at this point the voice keeper of, of, all the, of all the movement of the gospel right now in Israel. He's the primary voice. Now, James was the leader in Jerusalem, but it was Peter's voice that was known throughout the region. So Peter is also the figure in the story. But what happens is, on the same night, these two men received a vision from God, a dream. For Cornelius, he's told as he's been praying to God for guidance, for knowing how to, to live things out, he probably feels guilt for some of the things he's done as a, as a centurion. Uh, and he's, that's why he's being very, you know, giving to the poor and so on. And he becomes a fearful of God, even though he doesn't know who God is. And God tells him, you need to reach out to a man named Peter who is out by the sea right now. And he will tell you how you can be saved. So that's his vision. So he sends two of his servants to go to the sea to find this man named Peter and bring him back. Peter also has a vision from the Lord. And in that vision, God teaches him basically through, and we're not going to teach the vision right now, but basically teaches him that all people are worthy of hearing the gospel. There is no one unclean that should the gospel should be withheld from. So as a Jew, that meant for him that he's got to be willing to share the gospel with even the Gentiles. And then in that vision, he's told, and, to, and you're going to wake up, and there are going to be a couple men at the door, and they're going to say, we want you to come to Cornelius' house. He's a centurion, and it's okay to go. So to... Have that vision and be told you're going to be in, inviting the Gentiles even to the gospel. And that first Gentile you're going to speak to is a centurion. Peter would have likely opted out if he, didn't just, if he hadn't had such a powerful vision. So now let's pick up the story. You've, you've heard the explanation. So let's pick it up in verse 23. At the end of it, you will see when it says the next day. So the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. So let me just pause. So you have Peter going, and he didn't just go alone. That was probably wise. Like, take a few people just in case this doesn't go well. And also to have witnesses to make sure that 
they understood that Peter was doing this in obedience to God who had given him a vision. So he'd shared that vision. They now realize, okay, we'll go with you, Peter. I'm not sure this is a good idea, but we'll go with you. So they go. Meanwhile, Cornelius is waiting for them to arrive. And what does Cornelius do? Cornelius invites his, clo- his relatives and his close friends. Now, in the text, the word oikos is not there yet. Okay, so Cornelius has invited all these people to hear the gospel. Verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up and said, Stand up. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So may I ask why you have sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all, <clears throat> now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is gone. He is the one whom God has appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then you'll see that in verse 44, the spirit of God came on those who were there. So you have this powerful exchange An unlikely exchange between Peter, who was not a fan of the Romans. Keep in mind, his Savior had been crucified by the Romans and and overseen by centurions. So you have this issue within the heart that's got to be worked through. But the vision that God gave Peter was so powerful that he realizes that the gospel does not show favoritism. It's for all people. Which means that as much as we get bad news 
from certain countries in the world. Like, China is not a very popular country in our country right now, right? Let's just admit it. Many of us are not happy. I mean, we, we get everything that happens bad in our country, we tend to blame China. The lanternfly. It came from China. The stink bug. It came from China. The pandemic came from China. The balloon <laughs> came from China. So it's been dripped into our hearts and minds that China is lesser than us. So would you be okay if we put all of our efforts into sharing the gospel with the Chinese people? We should. And we are. We are, we are reaching people in Southeast Asia. And our goal is to get back into China. We've had people there, but it's been a rough go as the last few years. But our desire is to get back in there. Will you be okay with that? I mean, this is part of God's work that he wants to do in here and doing us here. And so for Peter, he had to get over that hurdle that a group of people that he particularly wouldn't have wanted to share the gospel with. God is calling him to. And so he comes into this house. He encounters all of these people. But there's a description that I need to give you from out of chapter 11, verse 14. And this is Peter retelling what happened in Cornelius' house. But now Peter's with other believers telling them that the gospel actually was received by Gentiles. But he said this in verse 14 of chapter 11. It says that a message had come to Cornelius that the messenger from heaven said, And this Simon called Peter will bring you a message through which you and all your oikos will be saved. So the description then is that in the actual vision given to Cornelius, he tells him, your entire household, your oikos, will be saved. Which is why when Peter shows up, the house was full. He made sure that all those that he had influence with, his sphere of influence, his relational world, would be there to hear what Peter had to say. Because he didn't want this to be withheld from anybody he cared, cared about. So what can we learn from this story about common patterns of disciple making, especially oikos disciple making? So again, keeping in mind, what disciple making is, is that we are leading people to becoming more and more like Jesus. Loving God, loving people, living truth, and proclaiming him to others. And so how does this look within our relational worlds? And when you especially look at what you see here in this text. And I would say this, that we got to sow this deep in our hearts and minds because we have to confront the insecurities that you and I might feel about being an active disciple maker. And that is this, God is always at work ahead of you in changing hearts. It is his work. God is always at work ahead of you. And so if you are struggling with some level of insecurity that God could ever use somebody like you to share the gospel and to sow the seeds of the gospel into somebody else's life, if you're feeling insecure in it, then that means you think you are the resource. 
and you're not. The resource is God. And it's God in you that you have to offer. And that has plenty. And so if you can let it be sunk into your mind that when you're feeling the insecurity of being able to actually help somebody who might already know Jesus, but to help them go from where they're at and beyond, then you need to remind yourself God is already at work in their life. And he's at work in yours. And so if you just step out with confidence that his resources are enough, God will use you in their life. And if somebody doesn't know about Jesus, and God's putting it upon your heart to be praying for that person and, and to begin to use uh, the, the relationship you have with them to pass on the greatest thing that has happened to you and not withhold it from them, you can trust that God has already started to work in them if you've begun to identify you know what? I think God's placed me in their life. God is already at work ahead of you. Secondly, your personal testimony of God's work in your life is powerful to those in your oikos. If you have influence, again, keep in mind, your oikos is your relational world where you have a sphere of influence. Your influence is based on who you are. And so if you have a testimony of God's work in your life, then that is something that they will respect you in sharing. So your testimony is a big part of how God can use you to move somebody from where they're at in Jesus and beyond. Just Friday night, a gentleman that I've been working with for years, we're both believers, we're sitting at a restaurant together because we, we had just come, come from a funeral. We were in New Jersey, and, and I was a part of a funeral there. And, uh, and so we decided we'd go out to dinner together. I've known this guy for about 12 years. While sitting there in this restaurant, we began to share each other's stories. His story, you know, he's a businessman, he's a very successful businessman. He was an engineer that became an investor, and now he's investing in ministries and doing all kinds of things. God has richly blessed him, and he's become a generous gift giver. And I asked him, I said, so what do you do that you've become this? Because I've only known him as the generous gift giver of an investor that now is using his investments to bless others. And he says, I was an engineer, designing things that have nothing to do with what he does now. And so I asked, well, tell me the story. He starts telling it, and then he starts sharing how God began to change his heart and his vision for his life. And I'll tell you, by the time we were done, I was encouraged, and my love for God was strengthened, and it went from here to here. And then when we, as we traveled back to where we were staying at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference, and he asked me, he goes, tell me your story of how you ended up doing ministry in Pennsylvania. So then I start telling him my story, and he told me at the end, of, he's like, man, that just encourages my heart. His love for God went from here to here. Our personal stories of what God's done in our lives can make a difference in somebody else's. Believer or non-believer, why would we withhold what God is doing? Thirdly, I think what we learn from this is that our oikos, there might be opportunities. And for Cornelius, he saw there's an opportunity. This messenger says, you and your oikos, your household, your influence, those you have influence with, 
can be saved if you bring this man to your house. So what does he do when he knows that man's going to come? He invites them to his table. He invites them to his house. And they came. They came. I think that's a part that we just kind of gloss over. This is a Roman centurion. Who do you think he has influence over? Other Romans. Other people that probably aren't going to be as interested as maybe he is into what God is doing in his life. But they respect him. They know he's God-fearing. And he seemed pretty passionate about them getting an opportunity to hear from this guy named Peter. So they came. And this is where I would like to, again, encourage you. If you invite others into the gospel conversations, if you invite others into your home, even perhaps if you invite others to church, it is likely that they may receive it more than you expect. Found an interesting statistic. In 2004, a, a survey had been done of several thousand people. And in that survey, they were asking questions. If somebody, if you're a non-churchgoer, and somebody invited you to church, would you go? So I'm choosing this one because the invitation to church, you and I might think that's like the biggest ask you could ever ask of someone who doesn't go to church is to invite them to come. 96% of people said in 2004 that they would come if invited, especially if it was somebody they knew. All right. So you're thinking, oh, so much has happened since 2004, right? How many of you are thinking that? Culture has shifted. It's not the same. 2015, same type of survey. It didn't change. It's still in the 90-something percentile. What was interesting about the new survey in 2015 is that they said, yeah, I'm likely to go as long as it feels like it's a natural ask. And when asked what natural means is that there's some kind of relationship and that they're not seen as a project. Now, are we getting close enough? Because 2015, you're now several years into multiple presidential uh, administrations. Culture has shifted significantly. It is still true today. Now, there's not as many big surveys going on, but this hasn't shifted but by more than 1% or 2%. This idea that if people were invited to church, they're more likely to come. And what was interesting about the 2015 surveys, they said, I may give off that I have zero interest, but I actually do. And I would say that is what we're seeing today, is there's more curiosity. And if, how is it that you believe when the rest of the world sees it very differently from you? They want to understand so the invitation might be more accepted than you expect. But imagine that. We're talking about church. What if you invited them to your table? If it's 90-something percent likely they would join you by coming to church, what do you think the likelihood of them coming to have dinner with you if you're going to barbecue some ribs? It's probably almost 100% likely. So what we're talking about here is that when you have influence with people, and they can see that there's something real in your life, don't presume in your mind, don't presume in your mind that they won't respond to any invitation you might have for them. Lastly, 
Our homes can be a great resource in providing encounters of the gospel. Every example I just gave you from out of scripture, the encounter with their oikos was at their home. So I think we underestimate the power of a meal, an invitation to come into your sacred space of peace. When was the last time you invited somebody to your table? Over the years, since we've been using the term oikos as a missional term in our church, we've been handing out about every two years this card. So if you have a bulletin, can you pull this card out? On that card, you'll see 15 spots. That's not meant to be a hard and fast number. But it says there are neighbors, co-workers, friends, relatives, schoolmates, others, where you might have an influence with them. Would you consider going on a prayerful journey of just saying, Lord, who have you given me influence with right now that I should begin to pray for? And that by praying for them, I'm praying that they become, they come to know Jesus more. And then to ask God, like, God, how can you use me in their life? How can you use me to pass on the gospel? And then as God responds to that prayer of petition, act, invite, become involved, be intentional. I will tell you that my card might shift in a single year because people move out of the area so that my opportunity of influence goes down. Or something's changed in my life where I don't get a chance to interact with them. But you know what? While it's a fluid piece of paper, this is not meant to be rigid. It's meant to be a reminder who's God placed around you right now that you should be praying for and investing in. Whether they're believers or non-believers, how can you move them from where they're at now another step closer to knowing Jesus fully? And the most important thing I can give you in this whole journey is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is Paul describing how he does oikos, evangelism and disciple making. When he says this, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we have cared for you. Because we have loved you so much, we were delighted to share the gospel with you and our lives as well. If this becomes the nature and the spirit by how we interrelate with those in our oikos, that we are, love them so much, we care for them so much, that we're delighted to not only share that which makes us tick, the gospel, but we also share our lives with them, then they know they're not a project then they know that it's out of love and care for them. And that they can then experience your love for God and your love for people and know that the two are intertwined. So too, Jesus says, that as we build up the church, as we interrelate with each other, we have to invite each other into our lives. That's why we do life groups. That's why we gather here as a body 
And that's also why we take communion together. We invite each other to the same table. We're reminded that we have the same Lord. We're reminded that we have come to that table previously as sinners and now saints saved by grace. That too is an invitation. All born out of love. So God's call upon all of us is that he wants us to fall in love with him and then we fall in love with what he's in love with, which is people. And then he places those he loves that have embraced his love and he places them in people's lives because he cares about the lives that can be impacted by you. Let's pray. So God, I recognize I recognize that we have many people in our lives that maybe we've withheld from. And I've talked to so many people from last Sunday's sermon that they've been silent with people around them. They would model shamelessly a love for God, but they would say nothing. And we know words are necessary. And I think what we learned today is that if we have influence with, with people that you're already working ahead of us, that they will receive from us. Not always, but a good percentage of the time they will receive. And they will certainly respect it if it's out of love. So God, remind us as we take communion today that this is your invitation to us to come in to relationship with you. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. You came to seek and save those who were lost. And we're the beneficiaries of that. And we're reminded as we even do this now that it's been an invitation to us of something we have not earned. So Lord, use this time at the communion table to remind ourselves that the body of Christ is special and that you desire more to enter into it, to grow this family. So put that upon our hearts as we take this today. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. Because without your work, we would have nothing to celebrate. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, is of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is part of our proclamation. So we're going to do communion a little different this morning. We're going to be doing, singing a song called What He Has Done. Because it's by what he has done that we can even take of this bread and drink of this cup. And so sometime during the song, whenever you wish to take of the cup and eat of the bread, you can do so. And once you have done so, stand and join in the singing. This song is one you're going to appreciate. It really resonates from the depth of a heart of gratitude. So again, take as you wish. And if you don't have a cup with you right now, just put your hands up. 
the ushers would be glad to provide you one because we don't want you to miss out on this moment of invitation that Jesus gives to us. And again, once you have taken at your will and your wish, you may stand and join. Heaven, and 
King of Kings.
Has Jesus made a difference in your life? Are there people around you, both believer and non-believer, that could be encouraged by what Jesus has done in your life? Yeah. yeah. Even if you feel like it's been a journey of struggle, just by being transparent and honest about it could benefit you by sharing it with another. And then they might be blessed by you being courageous enough for sharing. This is about God sowing seeds of his gospel in people's lives wherever we go, that we can be seed bearers with the good news of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we are going to, it's actually this afternoon at 4.30 in this room, we're going to have another gathering where we're going to look back over the past 12 months and celebrate what God has done. We want to acknowledge that he is continually at work. And so there's going to be an opportunity to share. We're going to be doing what we call cardboard testimonies. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go on our website and there's a link there that will give you a video of what that looks like. You can come prepare to share a cardboard testimony to tonight of what God's done in your life so we can bless others. But it's also a fellowship time. We're going to be at tables here in this space. And uh, so bring an hors d'oeuvre, a finger food that you can put at your table. And then I'll work the room and try all the various things that are here. And uh, so please come and uh, offer that uh, for my own body's sake. Anyway, having said that, if God has put something upon your heart, you would like to pray with someone. We'll have people in the encounter room that will be glad to pray with you. Maybe it's praying for somebody in your oikos. Maybe it's somebody that you just have a burden for and you need prayer over you to be courageous uh, and loving to them and, uh, and then prayer for them. We'd be glad to do that. I'll also be up front and be glad to do that as well. Having said that, go and let your feet be beautiful, bringing good news to both believer and non-believer that they can be moved one step at a time closer to Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>